everybody to another episode of Mentally Unscripted. I am Paul. I'm here with Scott, the amazing, the uh, the bearded. Uh, I, had a, I had a term for it, a name for it, and I totally dropped it. I had something. Uh oh. Um, I guess we got to start recording again. Yeah, we got we got to start over. But but Scott, how are you today? How's your week going? I'm doing great. Uh, how about you? You know, I'm a little tired. We were talking offline about the smoke. I feel like I've taken years off my lungs, off my life. You know, being out here in Montana, where every day just feels like a black haze is everywhere. Um, if I take that out of my life, I'm fine. But what? otherwise, I'm probably <laughs> ingesting like you know the equivalent of just sucking off an exhaust of a of a diesel truck. Okay, well, like that. <laughs> well, that that doesn't sound good. But you know, speaking of sucking off the exhaust of a diesel truck, have you been reading this stuff about the uh, FBI's involvement in this plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan? I I I. I I'm just again confused by who I'm supposed to trust. Why? Why don't you share with our audience uh, who who the good and bad guys are? Well, well, I mean, it it sounds like there's there's bad and then there's stupid is is really all we have involved in this case. But I was just listening to Jimmy Dore this this morning. He was talking about it, and it, apparently the FBI set up a, a like an open house and provided food and I don't know entertainment maybe, and and was inviting people to come so they could start discussing this a plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan, um, which just seems really ludicrous to me. That's like, I mean, what are, are there like open house signs out saying, you know, come for the food, stay for the entrapment. I mean, what's going on? <laughs> and, ouch, and they're saying, like, you know, at one point, like there were eight people involved and like five of them were FBI agents or informants. And only three people were actually actual plotters. I mean, like, I mean, how many, how much money did we spend as taxpayers? How much money did we spend to set this up and get these guys? I mean, that's. Uh, well, clearly not enough. I mean, maybe yeah. they, instead of doing house parties, they could have done big boats and yachts. We, we could have gotten just a, you know, expand the net. We could have just caught everybody who's still confused about what they're doing at these parties. Yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe they should have upscaled the party. Maybe they weren't <laughs> serving enough beer. Maybe. I don't know. But I mean, apparently the the guy, the informant who was the one who was sort of the ringleader of this whole thing, um, the FBI was going to pay him in like $25,000 cash in a new car. So, I mean, you know, oh, you know, who knows? Maybe there was days. a, yeah, maybe there was a yacht involved somewhere. I don't you know. Who knows? <laughs> um, was, so. was it University of Michigan colors? Was it was it kind of the, <laughs> the blue yeah. and the gold? Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, that, that would have been pretty amazing, right? But um, I mean, isn't it great when our you know our top domestic law enforcement agency has to basically engineer cases to make it look like they're doing something? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it does beg the question: How far do you go to to catch the bad guys? And then and then of course then you're wondering who are the bad guys? I right. mean. You know, are they, are they actually, are they, the people show up and say, does anybody want to commit this horrible crime? No. Well, what about this? And they spend three hours trying to convince everybody. At some point you're like, okay, well, who's actually doing the bad, bad guy work? Yeah. Who are the bad guys? Yeah. It's like, here, have another shot. Do you want to do it now? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> oh man. So. Uh, well, I, you know, I, uh, as I said offline, I'm just at this point of total confusion bombed. I feel like everywhere I look, I have different information. And, you know, the, the easy way is someone's going to look at it and say, oh, no, you're just focusing on the wrong sites. You just need to go over here and listen to these people. And you're going, that's just garbage. How can that, How is that not garbage? I mean, it, 
there's just constant misinformation from everybody. And then I think if it was this week or last week where the administration was talking about how they have to fight misinformation. And then there's the meme going around with Fauci contradicting himself, talking about, well, you know, do mass, don't do mass. This is going to spread. It's not going to spread. And then all the predictions that end up being wrong. And you're going, you know, again, going back to if it's the FBI, if it's the CDC, if it's the FDA, like, do we really trust these people? And why should we trust these people? I mean, they seem to... They seem to get it wrong daily. It's almost a, a sport for them. And then the 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 better, you know, the the bigger the wrong or the bigger the mistake that they make, they just figure out a new way of saying, well, we, that's not actually what we meant. You're going, just maybe just admit that you, you made a mistake. Exactly. I mean, that's sunk cost fallacy right there. I mean, yeah. and instead of just saying, you know what, this this whole virus thing, it was new to us. It took us some time. We're still figuring it out. We thought we had we thought we had an answer, but some things changed and now the answer changes. But no, they, you know, I heard Fauci say that, you know, the science doesn't change. It's the virus that changed. And I, I don't know. I, I find it, it just seems odd to me that we can, a, a virus can just mutate that quickly. And of course, I'm not a doctor. I don't know. But that yeah. it, it could mutate to the point where so much of the fundamental understanding that we have of it just changes. I, I don't know, but maybe that's possible. Yeah, maybe that's possible. I don't know, but yeah, yeah, I think I think if they had just been honest early on and said, like, listen, we're still figuring this out. We're giving you the best information we have right now, but this could change tomorrow. You know, I think they would have a lot more credibility with the public. I agree one hundred percent. And what we're talking about probably speaks to a larger problem where the institutions have decayed. And they don't know how to react to a new digital world where information travels at the speed of light, where uh, counter narratives come up at the speed of light, where where truth, um, you know, it's 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 complex, right? Because in some ways, it's it's harder. As I was just lamenting, it's harder to find the truth. Yet, um, yet at the same time, it's easier to detect when you're being lied to in some ways. <laughs> So, you, you know, and, and, and maybe that's just a bias. Um, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, of big government. And, and so I look at much of the, um, the infrastructure that's supposed to have helped us over the last year and a half. And I think to myself, my God, what have you been doing? You know, um, I, I still wonder to this day. I mean, I, I know I'll probably get ripped on this by somebody. Uh, you know, it wasn't technically gain of function practices that they were that they were working on in, in China. That's that's what I'm being told. Yeah. Uh that's I think that was the latest. That was the the Ron Paul and Fauci exchange. Yeah. Well you, sir, Paul. you don't really know what you're doing. You have no idea what you're talking yeah. about. This wasn't gain of function. Okay. Yeah. So you're telling me that then if it wasn't gain of function, what exactly were they doing with these viruses? Um, what exactly was being studied at this laboratory? Why was information destroyed out of this laboratory by China? Why have scientists that we expected to be able to speak to are gone? Why is there sequences that were put into a database and then taken out? You start to have all of these facts that are less disputed, although apparently anybody can dispute anything anymore. And then it starts to look at a pattern. It doesn't have to be that way. It's possible they weren't doing gain of function if it wasn't on a document. But you, you do beg the question, well, uh, 
do you, do you trust the people that are willing to destroy evidence? Uh, do we trust that they weren't doing something on the level of gain of function? Right. That is what that again, Fauci it has been, as far as I understand, he's been a proponent of gain of function for decades now. Right. He has he's talking, extolling its, its benefits of, of being able to prevent or, or treat the next pandemic. And I still, I, I try to find this. What benefits has society had from gain of function research? Are you aware of any? Are, 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 because as far as I understand, any of the virus, any of the RNA, any of the, 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 the vaccines that we have today, none of them actually came from the, the gain of function research. Well, I mean, it's a matter of perspective, right? If you're a shareholder in an airline or in Boeing or in a pharmaceutical company, I mean, you have profited immensely off of this gain of function research anyway, you know, so, okay. So So I'm just, I'm just a poor investor, (laughs) right? You know, you, you, you gotta, you know, the elites, right? The politically connected, they're the ones who matter. So as long as they're benefiting, right, it's, it's not for us to, to complain. So I want to move on to today's topic, which for everyone who's listening, it's going to be confirmation bias and COVID. I don't know how many episodes we've done on COVID, but um, I, I do. I'll bring up the one that we did uh, um, many months ago last year. Uh, but before I do that, two things. First of all, um, the Power Broker is a fantastic book that talks about um, governance and talks. It's it's a biography of Robert Moses who for 40 years built New York City and is a fascinating story. Uh, it's a biography, not an autobiography, of, of his rise uh, from an idealist to a man who, according to this book, spent $28 billion on building New York City and the politicization of the process and how it goes, you know, man transforms from an ide ideologically driven purist who wants to transform uh, to becoming, and I, I'm, I'm early on in the book, but the implication is that he becomes more of a mob boss, right? Who wants to just, who, who feeds off the power that he, he accrues through this process. And it's fascinating to me when you read a book like that and you put it in context of what we see today of bureaucracy, of people that are supposed to be helping, they very much see themselves in, in the hero's light. Right. They're the ones that actually moved the world forward. They're the ones that changed the paradigm. They're, they're the ones that are actually serving humanity. If you don't see that, that's just because you're blind, not because you could have a difference of opinion. Right. Right. Uh, criticism is never allowed. So right. well, and- people need to check that book out. And, and don't be dismissed by the fact it's like 60,000 pages long because <laughs> it's actually a really, really good read. <laughs> is, the, is, the, is the font at least really big? So it's like <laughs> it's, four words a page. <laughs> a word a page. Yeah. Um, well, and you know, that just reminds me that it, it, just looking at the movies, it, some of the best villains are the ones who think that they're doing right and that they're saving humanity. Right. You know, the, the Avengers in gamer, I guess that whole first arc of the Avengers was really all about Thanos wanting to destroy half of the universe or half the life in the universe in order to save the other half. Um, so sometimes it can be a really fine line between good and evil and, 
Well, yeah, wasn't he working for the World Health Organization at the time? <laughs> yeah. I thought he had a, I thought he had a grant to yeah. study what it would be like with half half of humanity. Gone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think um, Fauci signed off on that, but but it wasn't gain of function research. What, it, but it was not gain of function, people. It was not gain of function. Therefore, everything is safe. Just just and, because we made a virus gain a new function, it was not gain of function. <laughs> 92 oh scientists studied the paper and agree with me. Of course, I'm paying yeah. them all, but you know, hey, whatever. That's right. Yeah. They're, they're, we butter their bread, but don't worry about that. There's no yeah. conflict of interest. Okay. Uh, so before we before we start this conversation, wherever you are, wherever you're listening to us, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, find us at mentallyunscripted.com and uh, sign up to get the, uh, the newsletter. And then also uh, wherever you are, if you're on Apple, if you're on... Um, uh, any Amazon, I don't care. Uh, go leave some comments. Let us know your thoughts and what we're doing right and what we're missing about these conversations. Uh, always looking for feedback. So today, uh, we're starting with a article that you wrote on your blog, uh, which is about confirmation bias. And the interesting aspect of confirmation bias is that it's thrown around all the time. People will, you'll hear, you'll, you'll see an argument happen online. People will start talking about it. Well, that's you, you're just, you know, hitting your confirmation bias. And I thought you did a really nice job of breaking it down and, uh, into, into a model, into something that's really accessible. So the, uh, there's a lot in the article, but, uh, I wanted to start with what I read was the definition. And, uh, and then, and then ask you a couple of questions. So, uh, what I had here was confirmation bias is our tendency to seek, interpret, and remember information that confirms our pre-existing beliefs. So was that, was that a, a definition that you found where you were going through, you know, was that like kind of thinking fast and slow? Is that agreed upon? Yeah. How, how do we, how did you come across that definition? Yeah, so that was the best definition I found. Uh, pretty much every place I looked had a, a slightly different definition, but it it falls into that same idea that confirmation bias is our tendency to to just focus on the information that reinforces what we already believe. Mm-hmm. And and I I think the what you have in there you say seek interpret and remember is interesting uh, because it's, it's kind of the model that you shared with, with how we, I guess we, is, is this how, you, how we gather and create our beliefs or is this just how we gather and interpret information when you think about seek, interpret, and remember? So that's a really interesting question and I didn't get deep enough into it to sort of answer the you know, chicken or the egg question. Um, all the research that I looked to, it, it already assumed a pre-existing belief. You know, wherever okay. that came from, from your teachers, your family, you know, your upbringing, whatever. Um, but it broke down confirmation bias into three areas, right? It's it's how we seek out information. So mm-hmm. if we have a belief that, uh, for example, women are poor drivers, if you believe that, okay, and I'm not saying women are poor drivers, I'm just saying this as an example, right? Then when you're out um, and you're you know, say you're a a traffic investigator for a, um, an insurance company, right? If you believe that women are poor drivers, right? You're going to seek out information that proves your belief. And you're going to tend to discount information that doesn't prove your belief. Okay. Um, and then it's the same thing with interpret, 
Okay. So sometimes we all know that you can interpret information two different ways or multiple ways, right? So um, you would be more apt to interpret information in the way that confirms your belief. So if you're looking at accident data and it can be interpreted two different ways, you're in one way shows that women are, are worse drivers, then you're more likely going to interpret the information that way because you're reinforcing mm -hmm. that belief that women are poor drivers. And then it also confirmation bias comes in and how we remember information. So you could see, um, you could look at, you know, 10 sets of statistics. Nine of them could say that men are, are bad drivers, worse drivers than women. One set would say women are the worst drivers. You're going to prioritize the set that says women are worth worst drivers over the nine sets mm. that say men are worse drivers. So that's, that's the three ways that information bias or, um, excuse me, confirmation bias comes in and how we seek, interpret and remember information. So we, we have a, uh, we put a type of importance on what we're remembering, right? So it's, it's not that we remember a nine out of 10 studies said men we're, we're elevating the one study that really confirms what our, what our belief already is. Right. So from what I found is that some people will just prioritize that one study. They'll come up with some justification for why that one study is more important than the other nine. And for some people, they just will tend to just forget about the other nine. And that one yeah. study is the one that whenever they're thinking about this issue, that's the one study that comes up in their, in their memory. So that's, that's the one they end up leaning on. Yeah. And that's a fascinating trick of the mind, right? That, that our memories are not created equal that, um, and that, and our belief system plays into that, right? Cause you could see a different type of a sorting algorithm by your, by your memory, where you just remember the most recent piece of information that you read rather than the one that confirms a belief, right? Our right. brains are not, are not built to do that. So I know the article talked a little bit about some of the benefits that we have from that, because when I, when you hear confirmation bias, at least in my experience, it's treated negatively, but they're, they're actually, I think you found that there actually could be some evolutionary benefits to why it exists in the first place. Right. Um, so first confirmation bias, it, it helps us to avoid cognitive dissonance. And so if we define cognitive dissonance as our attempt to hold two opposing beliefs at the same time, um, it's uncomfortable for us. And it takes a lot of energy because we've got, you know, we've got one belief saying that uh, men are the worst drivers. And then another belief saying that women are the worst drivers. And so you can't reconcile those two, right? So it takes energy to try to maintain that. Okay. So by confirmation bias, your confirmation bias by eliminating all the evidence that men are the worst drivers, right? It puts you in that nice serene state. Like we all, we all like to be right. We all like to be proven that we're right. So we will tend to just find the information that makes us feel good and makes us feel like we're right. Hmm. Which, which is just a fascinating observation that we can't hold these two ideas in our mind without that dissonance, which creates discomfort. And therefore we, we have to choose one over the other, right. right? Which, which almost implies then we reinforce these beliefs, either right or wrong. We're reinforcing them with, with again, what we choose to remember, what we choose to seek, what we choose to how to interpret, and then obviously on the remember on the backside, it's uh, it's a fascinating kind of uh, evolutionary trait, I guess, that we've we've built right. up. Right. And remember, we've talked about the law of inertia, 
right? So body in motion tends to stay at motion. Body in rest tends to stay at rest. Um, when you have a belief, it takes energy to move away from that belief, hmm. right? So, so when you have that cognitive dissonance, right, it's just easier to stick with the belief you already hold. Right. And it, in order to justify that belief, you will just seek out the confirming evidence and you'll disregard yeah. disconfirming evidence. So it, it's pretty interesting. Um, and given you would think that these days where things like energy are, especially in the U S where there's just calories all over the place, uh, you, you know, you would think that energy wouldn't be as much of an issue. Right. And, and, like mm -hmm. we don't have to waste our time trying to constantly scan the savanna for danger and things like that. I mean, we have more time to sit and try to reason through these um, instances of cognitive dissonance. But I think what happens is just there's so much information available now that, like you were saying, like it just puts you in this massive state of confusion mm -hmm. to where you just you don't have the energy or the mental stamina, you know, whatever to try to work through everything and try to come up with, with the best answer. So I think yeah, a well, lot of us, yeah. you know, like, especially with COVID, we're going to talk about COVID in a minute. And this is one thing I've been seeing a lot online is, you know, people who believe that masks work will stick with the masks work, no matter what information you show them that would indicate they don't. And it's the same on the opposite side, the people who believe that masks don't work, no matter how much information you show them showing that masks do help, right? They're not going to believe it because, and I think it's just a lot of it is there's just so much information out there to sit down and read through all the studies and all the opinions and articles and everything. Every doctor and epidemiologist out there is saying would just take a massive amount of energy. So it's just easier to pick your place and stay there. Yeah. So it's, I, it's, yeah. And I was just going to say, so, I mean, I think the question isn't getting rid of confirmation bias. I think the question really is how can we take it, acknowledge it and, and still make good decisions knowing that confirmation bias is there, right? Mm -hmm. How can we do that? How can you and I talk knowing that we both have our biases and still come up with a reasonable solution that's not going to create divisiveness and it's not going to take our rhetoric to just an incredibly shallow, shallow level. Yeah. And making decisions. So I think there's a communication aspect of it, which is engaging with uh, people, you know, and love um, or, or strangers for that matter, but trying to create a productive environment for communication. And then, then there's obviously decision-making where, all of us in the last year and a half have had to make some difficult choices, some far worse than others. If, it, if it's on the side of uh, what do I do with a loved one that's suffering from COVID, um, what, what kind of decisions do I have to make there? That's, that's terrible. But then there's, there's less life-threatening but still ter um, very difficult questions of if you're concerned about COVID, maybe you're a high-risk person or maybe you believe you don't know but you think you may be a high risk person, do you return to work uh, when you're, you know, you have an issue with your finances and you, you need the money, uh, but you're also scared about, about the virus. Uh, how, how do you make those decisions? Right. Uh, and, and as, as you were mentioning, a lot of it's going to come back to your belief system. 
And, and that is problematic in a lot of ways because most of us don't take the time to understand our belief system. The, you know, we, we've talked a lot about on this podcast, sort of the moral foundations uh, using the work by Jonathan Haidt to talk about what we uh, actually believe. And that's just a moral landscape, right? That's just the morality. But morality does play into much of the w- way in which we see the world because we're judgmental creatures and we judge actions and, and words uh, as, as a way, I think, just to negotiate our environment, just to understand who can I trust, who, who, should, who shouldn't I trust, who should I engage with, kind of a way of uh, determining where to put our energy. But because most people don't understand their belief system, and as you said, the confirmation bias starts with a, a understanding that there's a belief, there's an existing belief. And then you go to through the process of seek, interpret, and remember. If we don't understand the belief, and then we're not also then trying to figure out a way to mitigate the worst aspects of that process, then we're, we're really going to be confused and frustrated. And um, so hopefully we can talk about a couple of tactics and techniques that we can use. Because I'll be honest, right now with everything that I'm reading about COVID, it's just it's just constant frustration, and I I don't even know what to say anymore. <laughs> but let's 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 pivot to that if that works. Unless is there anything else from the article that you'd like to highlight? Uh, just one quick thing, and you mentioned understanding your beliefs. Um, one thing that is probably not surprising is the strength of your belief. Um, also. It, how strong you, how strongly you hold a belief impacts how how hard you will dig in on your mm-hmm. confirmation bias so if you you know you you really believe that that women are terrible drivers right you're going to be more resistant to anything that says otherwise but if yeah. you're kind of wishy-washy think eh, you know i don't know i guess maybe women are terrible drivers i don't know then you're going to be it's it, changing your mind's going to be easier and so when we get into COVID, I, I wanted to bring that up because I think um, I think Trump derangement syndrome plays in a lot here. I think people, <laughs> not everyone, but I think some people out there, they, they dislike Trump so much that they end up with this very strongly held belief that they just don't want to come off of. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's all driven by just how much they don't like Trump. And I, I don't know if that's true. It's just it just seems to be what I see on Twitter and just a lot of the divisiveness that we see seems to be coming down on the Trump anti-Trump lines. Uh, you know, and I'm thinking of like hydroxychloroquine, um, Mm -hmm. you know, when, when, when it first came out that hydroxychloroquine may help treat COVID and that there were doctors out there apparently using it with some success, right? What we should have done is said, okay, who cares what Trump says about it? Right. We should really Mm -hmm. look into this. But I know that there were people out there who were adamantly against hydroxychloroquine just because Trump said it, you know, just just because Trump brought it up and said we need to look into it. Um, And and so that's that's the type of thing where we need to we can get into a lot of trouble is if our beliefs are so strong, but they aren't really grounded in a lot of reason that we can end up making really poor decisions. And those are the types types of things that we need to be on the lookout for. I think that's a, a great point and something that we can certainly address as we talk about COVID. Well, let's start with that. Let's start with the belief systems that were in place going into COVID and then where they are today. So I think 
let's obviously it's a very broad topic, but I think if I generalize going back to early 2020, you've got diehard people that diehard love the president at the time, think that he is being um, lambasted by the media at every turn in a way that is um, over aggressive. Anything that he does right is never given any credit. Anything that he does wrong is con- continuously amplified. So he's never going to get a fair shake from from the media. Uh, they look at his policies and they believe that he's he's doing right by the country. Then you have the inverse of that, which is that no matter what he does, it's it's an ego driven, uh, maniacal plan to just enrich himself and his family. He doesn't care at all about the country. He is a, a charlatan and a, a fraudster who is who is incapable of making any executive decisions that could actually be helpful. And, and when a crisis hits, it's, it's much worse, right? Because then the, the stakes are a lot higher. And so uh, I, I think those are just like two interesting belief systems that, that played into um, how people evaluated, right? If I think about the first part of seeking information, so you're, COVID hits and you're asking the question, okay, well, what's going on here, right? Um, is this a real virus? I mean, I remember the early days, right? Some of the some of the articles that were coming out from the New York Times, the Washington Post said, well, this isn't going to be, you know, you should really be worried about the flu. Uh, it's going to be worse. COVID's really not a big deal. And some of them are actually saying that the people in Silicon Valley who were refused to shake hands, who said like, we're, we're starting to get concerned with this. They changed their protocols in their offices. A lot of the articles that came out at the time were talking about how this was, this was overblown. Right. And, um, which, which again, I think is almost a different belief system, right? Which is this sort of their elites. They think they're above it. They, they're, they're scared about anything that they don't understand. And, and, you know, the common person, um, uh, has has a worse issue. These people are worried about something that won't impact anybody, whereas the flu hits everybody. So I guess th- those are sort of a couple of observations about belief systems. What, do you think there's other ones that played into sort of the early early days of COVID or maybe, maybe ones that we're looking at today? Because I know you mentioned Trump derangement syndrome. That's kind of a, a belief archetype, if you will, at this point. I think a lot of the belief systems stem from Trump I also think that I think there are just there are people out there who, you know, for lack of a better term, they they just they enjoy panic, you know, whether a belief system of of constant panic and pain. Right. I, I mean, whether it's, you know, for monetary purposes, I mean, you know, we we were coming to the end of the Trump, the term. You know, at the time, we weren't sure if he was going to get a second term or not. But I do think that maybe some of the media outlets that were essentially saved by their anti-Trump stance, Mm -hmm. you know, were maybe starting to get a little worried that Trump wasn't going to get reelected. I don't you know, I don't know. I'm just I'm kind of just spitballing here. Um, But maybe they wanted to to ramp up the the panic uh, to try to. Uh, you know, keep sort of keep the gravy train rolling if Trump did lose the election. Mm. Uh, so there might have been that, you know, which, again, I guess that's still tied to Trump, though. Um, right. You know, and I think there, you know, when it comes to Fauci, 
I, I don't know the guy. I've never met him. I've heard interviews and I've, I've read articles about people just talking about he's an attention whore. You know, he just wants to be at the center of attention, you know, so it, you know, it could be that there are folks out there like that, right? They just want to keep ringing that alarm bell in order to mm-hmm. keep getting invites onto TV stations or onto the TV and onto podcasts and radio stations. So they can just keep talking. Yeah. You know, that, that could be it too. Um, and there's other people they could have just, you know, could have been convinced that they had stumbled on some new super virus and any evidence that came out to the contrary, they just weren't going to believe. Yeah. Well, I, I know at the time when I was hearing about it, it was all through Twitter and it was through a primarily Balaji, who's who has a pretty uh, sizable following, who's a VC, and he was talking about what was happening, what what, what it was going to look like in the coming year. I'm not sure how many of his predictions have panned out, but it it, it occurs to me like my belief system was I was trusting in someone who who is a technologist, who who uh, who seems to be very forward thinking who was warning me about this, this virus. And so in my mind, I'm okay, this is a real, this is a real problem, but we, we don't have enough information on it. And then as it started to progress, right, where we started to see lockdowns, uh, we started to see uh, mask mandates, uh, shutdowns, it, it became a question of, you know, I think back to your model you have here of seeking, interpreting and remembering the information the the information was difficult to seek out, right? We had a, we had a lot of bad data um, or questionable data, right? I mean, people were asking, are, are are we actually counting deaths correctly? Are we actually counting um, the the? Are we doing testing right? Or do we actually have sufficient testing? How many people have come out and already had the virus that uh, we didn't even know about, right? There was studies I think that came out of California that suggested that we way underestimated the number of people that had actually had the virus, implying that we actually probably had a, we were closer to our herd immunity threshold than, than what they maybe thought was possible. Um, but, but the seeking aspect of it was, was difficult, right? Right. I, I think, you know, normally when we think of seeking, we think of like hide and go seek, right? You're, you're out there <laughs> looking for something that you can't, you don't know where it's at. I think this was almost the opposite. I think is that, Maybe not right in the beginning, but at least as we went into the summer, there was just a fire hose of information. Mm. And so when you were seeking in order to help filter down that information, that that just onslaught of information that was coming at you, you were just picking out the things that supported your beliefs about the virus. And you were just letting, you know, the the rest of the deluge just pass you on by. Um, So, yeah, so that's that's the way as i was writing this article and it, you know as you know i've been thinking about this whole covid and mental models thing for a year now and that was one of the things i kept coming back to is how it was interesting at this time it wasn't it wasn't trying to pick information out you know it wasn't trying to pick out sparse bits of information here and there it was trying to pick out relevant information or information that you feel is relevant out of just a deluge of information that's hitting you well, and I don't feel like it's slowed down. I really don't. I, I had a conversation with my brother-in-law and I said, I feel like in some ways we still don't know much about COVID. And he, he challenged me on that. I said, no, that's not true. We know 
you know, we, we know that masks work and we know that, um, you know, that we, we now have protocols that we can accept. And, and I, I'm not, I'm not sure I, I'm not sure that what he's saying is factually correct or is incorrect. I honestly, to this day, do not know. Um, and that, that, that actually frustrates me quite a bit because it, it feels like we're, we're now at this terrible machine, which is constantly taking in information, spitting out exhaust of data. As you said, we have a deluge. It's just, it, it feels like noise pollution everywhere. And I imagine it's not just that a lot of information's out there. It's how it's being channeled. There's apparently there's an incentive to create misinformation by probably a variety of actors. And we, we can't seem to get to any kind of bedrock truth, you know, and I'll take the vaccines as an example. We've had so much discussion about whether or not they're safe or not. Um, how let's, let's say, What's the efficacy of them, right? We, I mean, when they first came out, they were being reported at 90, 95% in some of the trials. Now I saw some data that just came out uh, from Israel saying that may be lower, maybe more in the 70% range or, or you know, I'm sure those numbers aren't, aren't yeah. 100% right. Well, and uh, then but, to, to confuse that even more is, are you talking about with the Delta variant in the in play or without the Delta variant in play? And that's... And that just goes to your point, right? The, the information is just so confusing that well, we don't really even know. But yeah, sorry. Go ahead with what you're no, saying. No, no, no. I, I, that, that is my point. Uh, that uh, if I'm trying to seek out information and, you know, I, I have my, my, I have my belief, my, my understanding is that so far, and this is great, that the, the vaccines have been extremely effective at slowing the hospital cases of COVID. Uh, so that if you get COVID, it's much milder and that your chances of passing it on or spreading it are much lower. So, I mean, that's kind of what you want out of a vaccine, right? So, I mean, the data seems to suggest that it could be good. And I, you know, my belief system, when I heard it was mRNA, I thought to myself, it's a new style drug. And And I realize they're not all this way, but thinking of just Moderna, it's a new drug. It doesn't have a long safety profile. However, my belief is that we need new tests. We need we need new technology. That these are the types of uh, breakthroughs that we're actually going to want if we want to survive as a species. So I'm biased to think that I want this to succeed. Yet at the same time, I'm also biased against the bureaucrats, right? So my own belief system says I don't trust these people. I don't trust them. Because I've seen them flip-flop. I mean, everyone's seen them flip-flop, right? They, and, and then we also know that the incentives matter, as, as, as you famously <laughs> say on every podcast, if we can get you to say it. And we know that there's incentives for these companies to, uh, to sell billions upon billions of dollars in, in pharma sales. So there, there's, there's a disconnect there, right? And, there's a, and you, I mean, I'm almost pointing out the fact that my belief system is problematic, right? Because as much as I want new technology, the pharma has all the capital. The pharma invests the money. The government gives them a bunch of incentives to do that. It's not like, you know, two guys in a shop somewhere in San Diego are going to sequence the the drug and be able to produce billions of doses, right? So there's dissonance in my head, right? Which which then I, I guess what I'm saying, I'm, I'm not even sure exactly where my bias is, other than what I just shared, which is that I don't trust the bureaucrats and I also want this thing to be really good. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, that was a good point. And when you were talking, one thing I thought of is before when we were talking about um, like, like the dichotomy and belief systems, one that we missed that I think is probably really important is I, I do think you have a section of the of the government, of the community or of the country, uh, however you want to look at it, who really believes that this thing is dangerous and that we need to do something now fast. Right. And so yep. the people who are on that side, right, they're confirmation bias is going to push them towards we need to take the vaccines we need to wear masks we need to lock down right then you have another side that says well you know what i mean you got a pretty low chance of getting this if you do get it you got a pretty low chance of dying from it and we have a pretty good handle on who's in that high risk category so maybe you know we can take some time on this maybe we don't need to have everybody take these vaccines right away we can we can look into ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and fluvoxamine or fluvoxamine or however you say it a little bit more um so that's and that's maybe you know next to the trump and not trump thing that may be the biggest um the biggest dichotomy that we have in belief systems that's causing the different sides to to support different measures or one side to support measures and the other side to say, Hey, you know what? Make up your own mind. Um, do, do you think that that describes the science, non-science crowd? And I don't mean the people that actually follow science. I mean, the people that say, I believe in science. I trust, let's just say Fauci and I'm going to do what he says versus the person that says, well, no, I, I believe in science, but I'm skeptical. Yeah. I mean, it, I think I think it's it's definitely a false dichotomy when either side says I believe in science and you don't because I believe this and you don't like you know my favorite podcast to hate the all in podcast you know they they mentioned it um I don't know if it was their most recent episode, but one of the guys said like, you know, either you take the vaccine or you're anti-science or, you know, or, or you either you take the vaccine or you're against science or you don't believe in science. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's just absolute insanity to say that because it's not true. Um, what happens is, you know, science, science endeavors to tell us what is, but a lot of times all we have, all science mm -hmm. is able to tell us is is all science is able to give us is the best theory at that particular moment in time. And what you think is the best theory, I may not think is the best theory, right? I may have a different theory that is the best theory. So to say that you don't believe in science because you don't believe the same theory I do is it, it's, I think this is one of the problems that we have is that it's, it's pushing our, our discourse, like we like to say, to a very shallow level because you're not taking a second to step back and say, okay, well, you know, I mean, I've got my theory, you know, it has merits. We've got your theory. It has merits, you know, let's, you know, but I believe my theory is better because, um, but you need to acknowledge that the other theory is there. You can't just pretend like it's not there and then accuse the other person of being a conspiracy theorist or a science denier because they believe in that theory. Yeah. And as you're talking, what comes to mind is if you can put on your probabilistic hat. You can interrupt that voice in your head says, well, I'm right. You're wrong. You could instead frame it as based on the information I have, I think there is a higher likelihood, 50, 60, 70% that what I'm saying is more accurate 
and there's a 30% chance that yours, your theory is yeah. correct. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and that can actually help you sort of short circuit that, that bias that, that it becomes a one or a zero. Right. Because I mean, and actually in a lot of cases, if you actually take apart what someone is telling you, you'll find that it's, there's some complexity there. If you sum it up, sure, certainly, yeah. I, and I, I agree with your criticism of the All In podcast. I, I find that they can be, oftentimes when I'm listening to them, they, they go from really nuanced to so black and white, you're thinking, is that even the same person talking? Um, but, but then what you also see there is confirmation bias. You see people that are extremely articulate, yet their emotions are just beaming through their words. Uh, which, yeah. which is funny because I, I think there's a, there's a, a false belief that people are more uh, rational than they are. I, I think it's, it's more often the case that they're not they're but they're just really good poets yeah. <laughs> of the language. Right. I right. mean, they're wordsmiths to the nth degree. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, that's interesting because you brought up probabilistic thinking. I was thinking of it in terms of, I, I don't know if there's actually a term for this, but I call it absolute thinking where, um, it's, I'm right. You're wrong. No discussion, right? I'm 100% yeah. right. You're 100% wrong. I'm 100% right. You're 0% right. And there's no discussion. And, you know, when we're talking about the people who believe that the virus is a huge danger and that we need to act now versus the people who, you know, believe that, no, you know, do it yes, the virus is killing people, but it's not anywhere near as bad as what it's being portrayed as, right? I think the, the people on, this, on the dangerous virus camp or on that side of the fence, right? They're going to hold that belief pretty strongly, it seems like. And that causes them to really push hard. That really, you know, like we said before, the stronger your belief is, the stronger the confirmation bias is going to, you know, have that mm-hmm. grip on you. That's going to cause them yeah. to push their 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 side really hard and it's going to take an awful lot of energy to get them Mm -hmm. to move off of it. Yeah. And so, and the other thing too is right, is that they're the ones that they're going to dig in a lot harder, I think. But then the harder that side digs in, the harder the other side's going to dig in against them. (laughs) And you call an opposite reaction. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. More inertia. Um, That is inertia, right? Equal and opposite reactions. I think that's Uh, inertia. Momentum. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's um, one of the laws of momentum. Um, yeah, one, one, one of the laws, yeah. Um, so it's one of those very important laws that we <laughs> Right, understand. it's one of those Edison. I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so and the other thing, too, is, you know, I wonder, we were talking earlier about how much energy it takes to have cognitive, how to maintain cognitive dissonance and to change your mind. And I'm wondering if that that absolute thinking is just easier than probabilistic thinking. Yes. Right. And then also, you know, the des- like we mentioned earlier, you know, a big part of confirmation bias is that desire to be right because it just makes you feel good, like you have control of the world around you. And so when you think in absolute terms and yeah. in absolute terms, you're right, right? It, it, that's comforting to you. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, well, when we. And, and, oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I mean. That, that's let's give it just an example let's put a face on this you're um you know you're a family of of four to two young children and you know you have to go out of the house to work your wife uh maybe is able to stay home and work 
And um, now you have to make a decision about how do you manage through a pandemic where everything's shut down, right? Do you have taking care of those two children, trying to maintain a relationship with your wife, stressed out about whether or not you're going to be able to keep your job and your benefits? How do you think about, well, do I have the time to study and figure out the decision? Or is it easier? And I would argue it, it certainly is. And maybe it is the right decision to just outsource that and say, listen, we pay people through my taxes trillions of dollars for them to figure this stuff out and give me the information because my responsibility is to focus on something else. And so I, I, I don't, I don't begrudge anybody for doing that. Um, or, or, in, and I could say that I, I easily see why I would go that way. Now they may not paint it, paint the same story. They may say, no, 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 no. I looked at all the information. I looked at all the data. It's, it's clear that um, those people are telling us the truth. Therefore, we can listen to them. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I suppose that's also a case. But I, I, to me, you know, again, thinking about preserving energy, having to make the prioritization in my life, I, I could easily see where that's an easier step to make. Yeah, and I think this is one area where the government really fell down. Um, you know, it, that appeal to authority. You know, it's it's a fallacy, but sometimes it's what you have to do, right? You just have to rely on the authorities to tell you what to do. Cause like you said, right, you, you have a life to live, but when you can't trust yeah. those authorities, then you're left in this really bad spot. Right. And I think, and you know, so we've talked before about this, the illusion of control where it's, well, we, we, we have to do something. We can't be seen not doing anything cause that'll make us look bad. So we have to do something, even if we make it worse. And then ego starts to kick in or, you know, again, confirmation bias, right? They, they believe that what they're doing is working, right? Mm -hmm. So then they become resistant to any information that says that maybe it's not working. Yeah. You know, it, I think we saw that with the lockdowns. Once information started to come out that, you know, the virus was spreading perhaps faster due to the lockdowns and that there was mental health issues, there were domestic violence issues, drugs, alcohol, suicides, Right. You know, at that point, I think people, they, they really should have stopped and taken a really hard look at what was going on and then backed yeah. off of the lockdown thing. And I mean, you know, and said, hey, you know what, maybe, maybe this wasn't the best thing to do. You know, right. we, you know, we didn't know at the time it seemed reasonable, but so we tried it. It doesn't seem like it's working. So, you know, we're, we're just going to open up again and let herd immunity, let nature take its course, whatever, you know, tell everybody, you know, if, if you're at high risk, you know, to take your precautions, everyone else, you know, just, just go out, you know, and I'm not saying that that would have been the right choice or the wrong choice, but it would have been nice to see at some point if that conversation had started being made or start, yeah. some people had started having that conversation, but they really didn't. It, it just seemed like people dug in well, and sort yeah. of denied the problems that the uh, lockdowns were causing and just stuck to the rhetoric that we must have the lockdowns. We must have the lockdowns. And I think right. that's, that's where the government really started to lose a lot of its credibility. And it wasn't just with mm -hmm. the lockdowns, but it was in other areas similar to the lockdowns. Yeah. And I don't think this is unique to the United States where if you, if you listen to commentary on the UK, Australia, New Zealand, each of them have their own, 
challenge. And, and I think that there's certainly jurisdictions that feel like their government did a, a much better job and others that even if the government had a good outcome in terms of infections or deaths, there's still people that are complaining. But I think given that we saw a novel virus hit us globally as quickly as we could imagine in the most connected world we've ever had, and then have these systems in place like social media networks that allow us to share information about what's going on, truthful or infactual or lies, gave us this really odd uh, point where the every, every, almost all leadership failed <laughs> at once, right? And a lot of it, you know, you, you, you mentioned that you wish that there had been better communication about the decisions and about testing, right? So almost like, listen, we, we've, we've got our information, we're, we're upgrading it because we're going to make different decisions now. Um, it made me just think that it's really difficult for people to upgrade their belief systems if there's not clear benefits, right? So they, like invalidating a, a belief, uh, let's say the mask is an example, right? So if it comes out, like, as you said, the test, the data suggests that masks are never, um, aren't actually useful unless they're N95, KN95. I, I don't seem to see a lot of people updating their algorithm or their belief system to say, okay, yeah, you know, it makes us feel better. But when Fauci said at the beginning of the pandemic, it really doesn't do anything. And, and he very well could have been applying it to putting a bandana over your mouth versus putting an N95 mask on, right? Um, that, yeah, we, now we need to update this and understand, yeah. right? But but people don't, uh, again, we talk about this this idea of the belief system anchoring those ideas, right? If you're someone who uh, believes that there, there's value in being fearful, and you, don't, you may not even realize this consciously, but you, know, you have this idea that I need to be taken care of. Um, and I mean, a lot of people, I saw this, there was a belief system like, this is the worst thing possible. This is going to destroy everybody's lives. There was almost this fear porn going on. And someone comes out and says, well, you know, you really don't need to wear masks anymore. It, that challenges your belief system. You're going, wait a second. No, you, do you realize how devastating this, this is, this disease is? And, you know, I, I pulled up some, some numbers here and, and it's, it doesn't take away. If I, if I look at the data I have here, I mean, saying that mass doesn't work doesn't take away from the fact that we've, we've got, I think, 570,000 deaths in the United States. And that was as of July 15th. And we've got roughly 34.5, or maybe it's closer to 600,000 now in terms of deaths, but 34.5 million cases that have been recorded. I mean, it, it is, those are staggering numbers. Um, both can be true though, right? I mean, we can, we can understand both. We can look at the numbers and say, yeah, a lot of people died. Um, a lot of people have been sick. We don't necessarily know all the core morbidities, but by the way, the data doesn't suggest that masks don't really do much. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a, an account. Well, Tom Woods is one. He's got a website. I'll, um, covidquizzes.com, I think, or something like that. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, but he's got that website and then there's an account on Twitter. I'll see if I can find it and put it up, but they like to show the charts, like the case charts for different States. And they like to put in like where mask mandates went into effect, where they went, where they were taken out. And 
I mean, across the board, it's pretty remarkable. In a lot of states, you can see that mask mandate goes in, but then case counts go up. And then mask mandate comes out, case counts to go down. And it seems to be, when you look at these charts, it just seems to be more timed with the time of year or more correlated with the time of year than anything else. Because we know we've got a cold and flu season. So, you know, why wouldn't COVID follow that same general pattern? Um, You know, I don't know. But I think, you know, and yeah, so, you know, going back to our belief systems and just, you know, our desire to be right. It's like once once we take action and we put something in place, right? There, it, it takes a lot of energy to get uh, to convince ourselves to just come off of it, and that's right. why and, that's why the yeah the the illusion of control is so dangerous because we you know we've got a lot of momentum because something's happening. We have to do something, so we push ourselves off of that equilibrium really quickly and sometimes really far, and then we lock mm-hmm. ourselves into this position that when things start to calm down a little bit it's now really hard for us to come off of that position. Yeah, And there's a variety of reasons for that, right? Uh, we can feel um, silly for having uh, believed in something that right. ends up not being true. Right. We don't want our peers, our family, our friends to look at us as, um, so there's a status issue, right? I don't want them to think less of me. Right. But, you know, and, and this is probably a good time we could transfer into what are some tactics for, trying to stop the cognitive dissonance or at least putting in asking questions maybe or other types of habits that you can apply for understanding that you're applying a cognitive bias uh, and it's it's rooted in a belief that you may not even understand that you have and that if you understand that belief and it doesn't have to be a moral belief it can be a different belief and uh, so I, I wanted to give one that I, I thought was was good. And then I know you had a couple in the article that I want to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, so this one's actually related to ivermectin, which I think in the last several weeks has been making the rounds. There's there's a variety of doctors that are discussing it as being, um, on one hand, it's considered a an amazing, powerful, miracle drug. On the other hand, there's a lot of people that are saying uh, that the data and the studies that have been performed are are lackluster. And, you know, if you're asking yourself what to believe, I would say if you're in the camp that uh, it's a possible miracle cure, something that you may ask is, okay, how would we actually know what a miracle cure looks like? And what is the process that we would go through to understand yeah, that? that? That's exactly and, what I was just thinking. And if you, if you actually start to study that process, so again, you probably have a belief, it's easy to make a belief system that leads down to ivermectin, right? You believe that it's possible that the, the pharmaceutical companies are saying that they don't want any other drugs because they want emergency use authorization. Therefore, uh, we've got a drug, uh, any drugs that could be working, we're, we're not going to provide any, you know, light to light of day for them. Then you've got doctors that have stories that they've had some success with ivermectin, right? And then uh, you hear about some studies. Um, so I think before you start to believe, I, I don't think there's anything uh, that I would say is wrong with hoping that ivermectin is a miracle cure. Uh, in fact, I, I hope it does. Well, um, I mean, do, if you're a big shareholder in Moderna, you you don't want it to be <laughs> a miracle. I drug. sold off yeah. my stocks last night. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
No, but I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. What I would say is there's a danger if you're relying on that belief as if it's fact rather than having the information. So you can ask yourself a question like, okay, you know, if everyone is citing these, these sources, this data, uh, these studies, and if there's information coming out that the studies are, are being questioned, maybe you should understand a little bit more about the study process and, under, and ask yourself, okay, are all the studies created equal? And actually, uh, we, can, we can share it in the show notes. There's two doctors. They're skeptical of ivermectin, by the way. Uh, but they they did a nice discussion on what it is to look into research and the different types of research that should have been done for drugs. And they mentioned sort of some of the biases that can come out in any of these studies, not just for ivermectin, but any studies. And I think they do a good job of framing some of the challenges that you can have where maybe a drug starts to seem like it has some good potential versus when it's been studied in a very rigorous way. And we know that there's definitive proof that it actually changes outcomes. Um, so that, that was a long <laughs> sort of monologue, but it comes down to, if you've got a belief, ask yourself, do I understand the process well enough? Um, because again, there's nothing wrong with having hope, but there's a difference when you have a belief in it. So study the process. If, what are the holes that you don't understand? And then you can start to, um, you can start to see where you need to close those holes and maybe do some more work. Right. Yeah, and that—that's exactly one of the uh, coping or one of the mechanisms I had in here was to just question your automatic assumptions, right? Mm. You know, the, the way you were characterizing it, right? You—you you had two extremes: either it's a miracle cure or it's bunk, right? And, and you know, the truth is, is most of the time, at least my experience in life is that it—you it, know—it's rarely one extreme or the other, right? There, it's some something in between. You know, and just given the amount of information that's coming out about ivermectin and its effectiveness and the number of doctors that were reporting having some success with it, right, it, it most likely doesn't rise to the level of miracle drug, but it's most mm -hmm. likely not, you know, completely a waste either. Now, it right. could be yeah. that it's not it's it's nowhere near as effective or it's nowhere near as effective, effective enough to take the place of the vaccines. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, that could be the case. I don't know. Um, so I think a lot of people, like they start off with these assumptions that it's gotta be, you know, like we said before, before, right. It's, it's not probabilistic. It's more absolute. It's either yes or no, you know, and, mm -hmm. and that's an assumption that you have, right. So you have to identify that as an assumption and say, you know, well, isn't it possible that ivermectin, you know, it, it's, it's possible that it's not a miracle drug, but that maybe, you know, it does work in some cases. Right. Yep. You know, start approaching your your analysis that way. And like you said, too, stay curious and keep asking those questions. You know, what what do I not understand about this? Uh, you know, what am I possibly missing? I remember, um, you know, when we had George Silverman on and he said, when you're having a discussion with someone and they disagree with you, don't don't instantly get defensive. Take a step back and say, well, what does this person know that I don't? And, you know, it's start, to, yeah, yeah. Start to seek out that information. Um, you know, especially for us lay people who were, yeah, I mean, we're not doctors. We don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know, we have to rely on other people for a lot of this information. So chances are, you know, there's a lot that we don't know. Mm -hmm. And, and so we're probably not in a great position to really be informed anyway. Um, but that's not going to stop us from having our opinions. Uh, no, and, no, no. um, 
And I'm going to write a separate article on disconfirming evidence because I think this is really interesting. But, you know, actively seek out disconfirming evidence, sort of this uh, principle of inversion, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of coming at it with the idea that ivermectin is a miracle drug, say, well, Iver- I'm, I'm going to change my belief or just pretend that changing my belief to ivermectin is terrible and doesn't work. And I'm going to go research that, right? right. And, and see what information you come up with. Yeah. Um, and no, I, I, I think that's a great question that you can ask for any time <laughs> that that really should be deployed more often because that gets at the heart of the the belief that you have. Right. Um, uh, because you're actually putting in the mirror, looking at yourself and say, OK, well, I want to I want to believe that's a miracle drug. Now I'm going to believe that it's it's the opposite. It's actually going to be killing people. That, that that puts that uh, belief into sharp relief. So yeah. I, I think that's a great tactic. Yeah. And I decided to do a separate article on disconfirming evidence because I ran across a couple of really neat studies that really show the power of seeking out disconfirming evidence and how it, when you don't not not when you just ignore it, but when you actively don't seek it out, it can really cause you to make bad decisions. So that's going to be my next yeah. my next article coming up. But yeah, yeah, for now, I mean, just just flip your belief around and start looking for evidence of that belief and see what you can come up with. I think that's a good tool. So, so what, what have we talked about so far? We talked about take apart the process. Yeah. Um, I think you've talked about inverting uh, the idea or disconfirming information and trying to find that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we, we've talked about just the acknowledgement of understanding that you have assumptions yeah. and looking at what those actually understanding what those assumptions are. And I, I would put either sort of a, a, a super level to that would be understanding there's a belief system operating in your mind that you may not acknowledge. Right. Right. Uh, and it, it could, it, we, we talked about at the beginning here, just your belief system, when you're, when you're looking for this information and synthesizing it, you're mapping it to your belief system and your belief systems informing what information you're looking for. Right. So if you, and you can, you can tell people, well, my belief system is, is built on a, a sound fin- foundation Well, you know, there's, there's different types of belief systems. We were talking about different ways of identifying them, maybe the science and you know, science and non-science people put that in parentheses or air quotes. And then you've got the, you know, Trump is evil and bad. And then there's, you know, now it's, it's probably the opposite. Biden can do no wrong. Right. <laughs> so you, you see these belief systems sort of rising to the surface. And, and when you see that, it's, it's probably a good point to, to ask yourself, well, why do I actually believe that? Do I need to believe that? Why do I care so strongly about this and skip the decisions that have Nothing to do with your day-to-day, nothing to do with your life. It's different when we talk about COVID. As we talked about, these decisions in some ways are, you could say, life or death, or they're extremely impactful on our lifestyles. Uh, so it, th- that is different. But in other cases, you could probably realize, no, you're, you're, you're maybe feeding into this idea that I have to have an opinion about a topic that, frankly, <laughs> right. you could skip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It's, I mean, just remember, right, it's okay to say, I don't know. Um, or, you know, it's okay to say, you know, I believe X, but I don't, I don't know for sure. I, I'm open yeah. to having my mind changed. And, and that's the biggest thing is right. When you're having conversations, understand that these biases are coming into play and understand that you don't have to take these absolute positions that sure. everyone has to wear a mask or 
you know, no one has to wear, has to wear a mask and that, um, you know, sometimes, right, there's incentives at play in the information that you're being fed. And so, you know, you just have to take all of that into account when you're talking to other people. Um, but I, you know, I think the biggest thing is just being open to the fact that you could be wrong. And so, like I said, come off the absolute and say, okay, well, okay, maybe, maybe masks aren't 100% effective, but maybe they're, you know, 60% effective. So I think we should still wear them, mm -hmm. you know, you know, and then the other person, you know, and accept that the, the position of the other person could be, well, you know, even if they are 60% effective, you know, there's, you know, there's studies showing that it increases the CO2 in your bloodstream and it increases the risk of periodontal issues and, you know, gives you headaches, increases anxiety, you know, so maybe, you know, the, the trade-offs for that person just aren't enough to justify wearing yeah. a mask. You know, you have to accept that there's people have different positions, they have different belief systems and different priorities in life. Absolutely. And if you acknowledge that and can respect people as individuals, I think you will have a much deeper, richer, fulfilling conversation with people, even if you disagree with them. Now, I'm not saying they're going to be able to respond with the same uh, courtesy and <laughs> level-headed thinking, but you can't control them. You can only control your own, your own emotions and actions. So exactly, you know, I, I, I think you do the very best you can. Right, right. If if people aren't coming at the conversation honestly, then they're probably not worth talking to anyway. Yes, I 100% agree with that. So. I think we talked a lot about sort of what confirmation bias is, how do we apply it when we're thinking about COVID uh, and, and a couple of good examples there and then ways that we can short circuit it. Is there anything else that we missed? Cause it was a great article. It had a lot of, uh, a lot of good meat on the bone. No, we, we actually covered pretty much everything in there. Uh, just like I said, just be on the lookout for the disconfirming evidence article. It'll be a little shorter. Yeah. Um, but like I said, there's just some really interesting studies in there that will show you how powerful disconfirming evidence can be. <laughs> More pro powerful than we want it to be. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. We don't like to upgrade our belief system and we don't even know why. So we well, it's because we're humans and we're, we're, we're kind of arrogant. So we would just want to believe that we we already know it all and we don't want to be shown otherwise. That's right. That's right. Well, everyone, thanks for joining in another episode. We, we hope you appreciate and enjoyed the conversation. We'd love to hear your thoughts on confirmation bias, what you thought we missed about the, uh, about COVID or any other, uh, you know, what, I'm not sure what else has happened in the last 18 months that is really going to steal attention away from COVID, but if there's a different topic we should be covering, we'd love to hear from you. Wherever you are, leave us some comments, leave us some five-star ratings, and uh, until next time, take care, be safe, and be well. Cheers. Later. Later.